It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Is that our new thing? Is that our new like thing that we do? Yeah. Hey. Just a friendly hello. Hey. How's hey. it going? How's it going? What are we talking about? We're talking about your trip you just took. I you did uh, just take a trip. Well, first of all, let's talk about my trip. Okay. I went. Uh, I, I got to go rock climbing for five days without the uh, normal baby in tow. Yeah, that was nice. You know, a five day climbing trip like all y'all van lifer like single people who just do whatever you want is like. You know, that's what, like two climbing days and a bunch of rest days because <laughs> you don't care. But uh, to, to people with kids, they're like, holy Day one, shit. I yeah. always rest. Day two, I climb. Day three, I rest. rest. Day four, maybe rest Probably again. Rest again. <laughs> and then day five, Lasco Besco. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, people with kids are like, holy shit, you went just you went five days without your kids. Yeah. So yeah, we, amazing. yeah, we drove all the way out to St. George and back. Did, did, we, we dipped into a whole bunch of different areas, but the one place we went to that was really interesting was Crawdad Canyon, hmm. which kind of popped onto the radar probably like a decade or a decade and a half ago is some kind of, uh, kind of weird desert guy bought this canyon that's all basalt and there's a swimming pool that's been there for a long time down in this canyon just north of St. George and paid these guys for you know developers from Vegas Todd Goss and uh, Mike Tupper both like you know dudes that developed the early sport climbing out on the loop road and stuff to come down and bolt it and then basically had this sort of paid camping and climbing resort that you had to pay to go into and mostly I think people reacted to it sort of negatively as like, I'm not going to go pay to go climbing when there's all this climbing I could do for free. But it's right now, it's sort of between owners and we kind of went down in there. Nobody made us pay. We, we, we filled out a waiver and stuff, but then never heard back from the people. And it actually was really super cool. And it's this kind of wild oasis in the desert. Like you're looking out across that total scrub desert. And the road goes down and crosses this canyon, and that's the canyon. And it's filled. It's there's a running creek in there, and there's like uh, cottonwoods. And the climbing's actually really pretty good. Nice. And uh, but back to the no kid thing is the first thing we thought is there's a swimming pool in here. There's camping, and literally there's a deck like a paved deck that runs into the cliff, and you could literally be next to the pool climbing actually really quality rock climbs including up to like i think there's a 12c that's literally off the deck of the pool nice. so so it's like a it's like a perfect place for families who just want to like for ditch their kids in the you know in a puddle of water that they may or may not drown in yeah while you're well climbing. you know put the swimmer on them and yeah. just keep an eye on you know it's like one eye on the uh, on the climber, one eye on your kid in the pool. Right. Um, but actually, I was like pretty impressed, and I think my whole perspective has changed. Certainly, I think like a couple dudes or gals on the road, like twenty somethings, would be like, "This place blows." But I, I don't know. The climbing was good, so that was kind of this weird <laughs> gem. And then we crack climbed a bunch. We went to the swell, and so you know, it was a pretty exciting trip. And then right when we got back, you've you- gone from like soloing the reticent wall to. 
Crawdad Canyon. <laughs> yeah, I did not sell the reticent wall. Oh, you didn't? No. no I, I thought, thought that was like your claim to fame. No. I, did I actually don't know anything about your climbing career. <laughs> I did the second ascent of it. With, oh, second uh, ascent, okay. Yeah, with Mark Sinat and Kevin Thaw. Oh, okay. There you go. Yeah. So I soloed uh, other routes. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to get no into one my cares. Resume. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Ancient fucking history is what that is. Now I got a five year old kid and I'm thinking about going to this Crawdad Canyon place so I can so climb you can while he's drown in the pool. while you're climbing a sick 12C. <laughs> well, actually, truth be told, is that. The whole time we were there, we were telegraphing to you guys. I know. We were like, just imagine our kids (laughs) drowning in this pool while we're climbing this amazing route. (laughs) And I was like, like. Like, I'm in. (laughs) I got two. One of them can drown. It's fine. No, it's we're not. our kids aren't drowning. But it was actually really, really neat. And if there's any parents listening, check it out. It's between owners right now, or not between, but there's a new owner who's supposedly going to like jazz it up with some cabins and, and hmm. stuff like that. And, um, but the one, the other thing that's kind of wild about it is I assumed going there that it was going to be completely a curated experience and basically like gym climbing outdoors. Right. But it turns out that since it was bolted probably 20 years like ago, like a little hostess comes and like stick clips the first bolt exactly. for you on every route. Or, or at the very least, you know, you're, you have this like serious, danger of z-clipping because the bolts are so close together the way you do in a gym you know but since it was bolted like 20 years ago like it's old school bolting it is bolting that even at your crag somewhere else would have been retro bolted daddy's gonna whip yeah well it has the third bolt problem you know about the third bolt problem yeah the where if you blow the third clip, like you're gonna get seriously. Daddy's gonna up. hit a gonna take a digger. Because you're now high enough, you know, that right. the first bolt's irrelevant and the second bolt isn't gonna probably stop you. Yeah. And uh yeah, so I think the dude whoever's like re you know, jiggering it to modern standards is gonna have to go back and put some new bolts in. Although it had been retro bolted, like all the bolts were new mm. and you could see the old holes at some point. But yeah, it's confusing. It was it was cool. But yeah, I'm like, okay, I just rush up onto these roots, and all of a sudden, I'm like, ooh, don't blow this clip, or I'm going to like break both my ankles. <laughs> and if you did, your child wasn't there at that time, so yeah, that would have been fine. Yeah, it would have been fine. But, and I had signed the waiver so that they would have been fine, too. They're like, sorry, sign the waiver. Sorry about your ankles. But yeah, so anyway, but it's old school bolting. Because when they when they retro-bolt it, when they put the new bolts in, they just put them in where the old ones were, mm-hmm. and it definitely needs an update. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, it's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to have your uh, your head point game on. Mm-hmm. If you're a, a little bit, it's just like like I said, I just expected like completely bullshit. Right. Like, you were lured no into worries. the atmosphere of yeah. of just convenience, and that's what I want. Right. Come <laughs> if I do go back, I would prefer the <laughs> hint hint that experience. Because <laughs> if I'm gonna have one eye in the pool. And the it, one eye on the climb, I got to be feeling safe up there. Yeah. If whoever <laughs> owns this place is listening to this podcast, then mm-hmm. we can we can arrange for some kind of like mutual stay for free yeah, slash totally. bolting. I think that's trade. legit. Yeah. Like a, cons- a consultation. Yeah. I mean, who knows more about it than we do? That's true. Who, no knows, one. who knows more about what dads need? Definitely not Alex Honnold's right. fucking podcast. And that's actually been... <laughs> Don't go there. Um, I'm going there because we're going to talk about Alex yeah. tonight. So. But the thing is, is that like, uh, 
I think that um, they've been marketing it wrong the whole time, and that they they've been marketing it to like kind of real climbers, mm. and what they've been should have been marketing it to is washed up climbers like us who okay. have families, because that's really like. I think where it shines, but the thing is, is man, there was some vicious looking like five thirteens in there, you know, these six bolt things where it's going to, it's like game on for like three bolts, which is oftentimes like super gnar, you know, mm. and those guys were good climbers. Like those dudes were no slouches when they were bolting it. So it's not just like a full Gumby area, but all the way down to like five, three, which we can put the kids on. What kind of like anyway, Instagram? What kind of Instagram ads would you money need now. to like like target to like get to the washed up <laughs> climbers? Like it would need to be like I don't know. Like how would you even market to that group? Yeah, well, if we all got on a Zoom meeting with the owner, we maybe could like boner pills and like yes. you know, sweatpants or something. <laughs> Those fucking boner pills, man! They're all over my feed. <laughs> That and hair growth shit. <laughs> I think there's a I think there's a bot that like can tell on the photo if you don't have any fucking hair. <laughs> well, your phone's watching you. You know that <laughs> the bot can tell if your penis is flaccid <laughs> and if your hair is if you don't have any hair and if your hair's also flaccid <laughs> or if it's non-existent. They zoom on in on your package. <laughs> They're like, yeah, send this guy some pills. <laughs> And also Crawdad Canyon. Have you considered a spark climbing trip to Crawdad Canyon? <laughs> same, same. Instead of leaving mints on your pillow, <laughs> they leave the little pills. Uh, anyway, you were you were then when we got back, you left for a trip to Vegas, true, which yeah. is really what we wanted to talk about. Yeah, uh, ten minutes later. Yeah. Um, I I can't talk too much about it because it's uh, for an article I'm writing for Outside Magazine, but I can talk about it enough to right. like paint the picture. Teasy but a little bit, yeah, too. yeah. I mean, like, and I, I also feel more comfortable talking about it because Cedar right basically posted most of the details on his Instagram feed today. But anyway, I'm I'm like writing a little profile of these of Cedar Wright and Alex Honnold, and we like dreamed up this like little mission for them to do in Red Rock. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went down there to just kind of capture the, you know, the the essence of their their mission, uh, and it involved quite a bit of soloing, like fifty two pitches, which was pretty rad to like just go and see. And like you were a witness out there, like you were you were like rummaging around with them or what? Yeah, I, you know, like they, you know, Alex is trying to link up all these formations. Ultimately, he like wants to do the whole Red Rock traverse all as many summits with as much elegant climbing as possible right so that it kind of makes sense like you know all the classic routes all the summits as much as possible which he thinks is going to be like eight thousand meters of rock climbing in a push you know like 35 hours or something like it's it's like pretty gnarly right anyone who's climbed in red rock knows that there's like it's just just how complex this terrain is and like mm-hmm. how big some of these faces are and shit so anyway that's his goal and so he and cedar ended up doing like just a very small portion of of this traverse that alex has in mind anyway so i got to tag along with them i got to kind of witness their interactions at the base of climbs and you know it's like hiking around through different canyons to like meet them at when they were down climbing other routes or um 
you know, yeah. Anyway, so I just kind of followed them throughout the day, not soloing, but just hiking around and like meeting them and talking to them and shit for this article that I wrote for outside. It was pretty cool to just see Cedar who, who's climbing. I've often mocked, I would say (laughs) in person and and maybe in, in writing too, Mm -hmm. you know, Cedar has this reputation of being like kind of a, Alex actually t- called him the weakest professional climber in the world, which yeah, I think a lot of people kind of have that impression of well, him. Look, he's kind of like the, you know, he's like a five twelve climber right. who's like on the North Face team. Yeah, I mean, it, it's and it, and it may sound like we're like you know taking taking him down a notch, but it's part. It's his brand, and it's he's his aware brand. Of it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, totally. He's yeah, aware yeah. of it. Yeah. After seeing what he did, I will never mm-hmm. talk shit about Cedars climbing nice. again. It, well, first of all, he was in Ecuador doing paragliding for the last month, and he was basically off the couch for this whole thing. And he just like flew into Vegas, put his shoes on, and soloed like fifty pitches of climbing. Oh, you know, five nine or whatever, but still soloing, still, yeah, still yeah. legit soloing. No, the picture, and it was fucking yeah. rad. Like I was so. I was really so impressed with Cedar. I was, you know, Alex was, I was impressed with Alex in a different way because he's so comfortable with what he does. Like he climbed most of this link up in, um, in just his like sneakers. And yes, like the disparity between the two of them was very obvious. Like Alex and on a lot of the down climbs, which is like five, seven terrain or whatever. He was just like literally facing out from the wall down climbing with his like feet out like on his heels and using his hands while cedar was like down climbing like normally like facing the rock Mm -hmm. wearing climbing shoes and like chalking up you know but alex is just like chilling just straight chilling on you know on moderate climbing terrain in his sneakers just like you know just he's just so in balance with being able to just like sit on on like a slopey edge on his heels where he can just feel like comfortable. Yeah, like. But not just his sneakers. He was wearing approach shoes, right? Yeah. They were, okay. you know, whatever they were like <laughs> sportiva approach shoes. They were like, they just look like sneakers. I don't know what they, they were. They, they, they were had like, sticky Ch- rubber, I'm like sure. Chuck Taylor's. <laughs> no, no, no. He's a sportiva guy. He was wearing so. dance goes. Yeah. <laughs> Zappos. Oh. Isn't Zappos in Vegas? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I just wanted to clarify because sneakers to me is like, like you know sneakers like well they were pro shoes yeah, okay whatever your kids or whatever but still this is, i was just impressed yeah. like it was just no, impressive I mean, yeah. to see alex just being like this is you know he calls it's anything under 510 alex calls just scrambling scrambling yeah yeah but you know for cedar off the couch to just like do this like you know 50 pitches of soloing mm-hmm. it's pretty impressive yeah you know well in like, the picture he did post it's like what he's climbing is legit real climbing like for sure it was real he's on climbing. his toes and on his fingertips on, and like, if he fell blank. he would die yeah well that was the funny thing in his caption too he's like he was explaining the whole thing and he's like worst case scenario i wouldn't you know i would just stop in the middle of it and like be done with it and i was like you know what dude the worst case scenario is actually much different than that yeah I, and i wasn't the only one i think there was other people commenting like i think he got the worst case scenario a little wrong there bro dog like he was worried about not being able to complete the mission yeah and not necessarily about you know doing these hundreds if not thousand foot routes 
and falling to your death. So the funny thing about this whole link up for them is that they were doing these very classic routes, which were swarmed with people. And so they were routinely through like, you know, like climbing around people, like just like, you know, straight beginners, like on their first leads or whatever. Like, can you (laughs) imagine like, you know, cat in the hat and shit. They're like down climbing. That's yeah. Yeah. Down climbing cat in the hat. There was four (laughs) parties on that. And I mean, like, whatever, like I, I remember being, you know, on my first five, six lead trad lead or whatever and being gripped. And that's like an experience that you all have to go through, you know, as a climber. And I just like, could not get away from just imagining being like this gripped beginner on a on your first trad lead and thinking about your gear and thinking about your foot placement i'm gonna make the next move and here comes alex honnold and cedar Wright, literally (laughs) climbing down the route that you're struggling to go up (laughs) alex is facing out from the rock wearing sneakers wearing his dance goes and clogs he wearing his clogs wooden wooden flemish cog clogs <laughs> and you're just like you'd be like what the fuck, fuck. what the fuck was this well luckily look no you would be like what the fuck if it was just some dude yeah you know with a sleeveless t-shirt from vegas but luckily since it's alex honnold it yeah, was no, like the no greatest thing that ever happened to you oh totally yeah, yeah totally. no everyone was psyched yeah and actually um during the day uh, they were down climbing olive oil, classic mm-hmm. five seven yeah. there, and um, Cedar's iPhone fell out of his pocket, and this was at the top pitch of the route, and there was a woman who was like clipped into the last belay on the route, and it fell like twenty feet down the wall, skipped off the wall, and she like snagged this phone no out of air, like fully like, like. <laughs> Like, uh, you know, like uh, OBJ, like, you know, right. Giants, like quarterback, like, or, uh, you know, wide receiver, wide receiver, yeah, yeah. like, you know, just like one handed, like grab this phone out of the air. And Cedar was just like, hell yeah. <laughs> I wish I knew that woman's name because her, uh, there's no doubt her Instagram feed. Oh, totally. Fucking, talks about that shit right now. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's like when yeah. Steve Denny, our friend Steve Denny from Carbondale had to lend, uh, Alex Honnold his chalk bag. Yeah. <laughs> when he was on a speed ascent of the nose and he'd forgotten his chalk bag. So <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. I mean I mean totally. It, it it's funny because uh, it just reminded me of uh stories when I used to guide on Lumpy Ridge and fucking Steph Davis would come soloing past my clients. Mm-hmm. And I'd just be here like, ah, oh, Chris? Like, what? And I'd be like there's someone down here. I'd look down and there's old Steph like cruising up the roof, you know, like freaking my clients out. So yeah, it's pretty wild. It's interesting because I actually had an experience as like a five, six climber, you know, like in my first few weeks of being a, you know, a rock climber on my, one of my first leads. And I, I very distinctly had this, remember seeing someone soloing a route just next to me. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was like, do I go this way? Yeah, I remember talking to him. Like he was like ropeless, like 30 feet above me. And I was like, Hey, do I, do I go this way? Is this the, where's the anchor? I don't know what I said, but whatever it was, it was just like some Gumby thing. And you kind of have those like collisions of beginners and experts Mm -hmm. on the, on that kind of terrain 
five six to five ten or five nine terrain a lot of people like to solo that kind of shit and a lot of people like to have their very first lead climb climbing experiences on that kind of terrain and so it it is this weird collision of expert and strict beginner Mm -hmm. interaction that you probably don't find anywhere else in any other sport well no the wild the funny thing is and and i know this to be a fact because you can find it on like the old super topo and the mountain project is that there's a certain like probably late twenties to like 40 year old male who gets super pissed about it. Right. And like post about how it was super dangerous and how that they had risked everyone because if they'd fallen, they would have like landed on people and like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there, there's a certain the person righteous, and it's always a dude. The righteous indignation. Yep. And it's always a dude of a certain age that's going to have the righteous indignation about the soloist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I swear to God, like you can find them all over the, the forums where they got really mad. And, it, and, and it's so like transparent that what they're really mad about is the fact that some dude's soloing this thing that they've dreamed about, like climbing on a rope for however long it's taken them to muster the courage to do so and it's just it's just a bummer because it's like wh- yeah there is some very remote chance that this puts you in some level of possible danger for a few seconds at some point but it's just like there's just so much to celebrate in the purity of what those people are doing i think that this we need to talk about this because okay. this is a distinction that i think a lot of people are really confused about which is someone else's achievement in climbing does not take away from anything that you have achieved or your moral worth as a person. People are confused about that for some reason. It's very like odd to me that that's, that's a thing, but people seem to be confused by it. Mm -hmm. There is a very clear hierarchy in climbing. We have a whole hierarchical grade system (laughs) that makes (laughs) that codifies the hierarchy. People are going to be better than you or worse than you. And it's a very, it's like painfully easy to like kind of measure, measure that. You need to get over that. (laughs) You really do. Whether roped or unroped. It's part of the sport and it doesn't, has nothing to do with like any kind of moral value of yourself as a person or, whether you belong to the sport or whether you're like worthy of being, you know, given the honorific of being called like a real climber or whatever, all of that shit is like in your head. And, but yeah, there's a hierarchy and you can, you can choose to be the person who is focused on me, 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 and I'm like not good enough. And everyone else makes me feel bad because I'm not good enough. Or you could be the person who's like, wow, this is like the potential. These are the people who are doing stuff that's harder than I can do. And this is how they're doing it. And I I don't know, like that's just seems to be lost. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know, it's like a weird thing to like, imagine that, that why that would be lost, but it just is. Well, I think that it's like, I, I can understand and, and, you know, there, there's a lament and, and we do it on the show. It's just like, oh yeah, this kid just warmed up on my project. Like, yeah, it's human to sort of feel like, oh God, like this is, is a sort of a referendum on my ability. But 
it's it's when you take it into sort of like I said the 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 angry post or the like true feelings of of detriment. Like, yeah, I get bummed sometimes when I have to like wait in line while people prod while people warm up on my project. Like, that's just human, you know. Like, I it's it's kind of a little bit of a bummer, but you know, it doesn't like color my sort of feelings about those people or the climbing. And it, it kind of reminds me too of like, I guess we fall into Does this it too. really like, not? Yeah, I, I don't think it or do does. You, do you harbor any like, like truly do you like feel animosity at any point or like, like little twinges of. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Little twinges. Yeah, certainly. But, but, but I, yeah, I, that's, I, I guess that's what I'm pushing back on that, on that statement a little bit, because I think the reality is, is that we need to acknowledge that. Yes. If you're the person who's trying the hardest thing you've ever done in your life physically, and Alex Honnold is literally walking down the thing that you're trying to climb backwards, backwards with his heels and his Dansko, you know, he does. He's not on. sponsored by Dansko. He's sponsored by Sportiva. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> you will feel you will feel a twinge of resentment, right? And that's normal. But let it go. But let it go. Yeah, yeah that's the <laughs> that's, that's the part that we need to at. talk yeah, about. Totally. Like, you can feel that like <laughs> thing that that feels ugly. You know, you can feel that little little that little like twinge of like animosity. It's it's not just like I don't, I just don't want to give people the impression that at some point in your climbing career you ever reach this phase where you're just like I am at peace with the grading hierarchy and sure. I never I'm immune to all. You know, to all people who are better than me or worse than me, it's right. all good to me. And you know, there's like an equanimity or whatever. It doesn't ever get to that. Like you just actually just have to deal with difficult feelings and that's it. Yeah. Don't go home that night and at midnight start to type your angry post. Yeah. Instead, Don't be that guy. <laughs> at midnight, if you're going to start, instead of typing the angry post, go do a hangboard workout. Right. <laughs> 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 you know those are the, it's like one thing is is gonna drag you down the other thing's going to elevate you so just go get on get on you know crack open the internet and see who's doing the cool workout and do one at midnight in your parents basement or wherever you live i um, feel like this just became a training podcast <laughs> or go eat another donut whichever thing moves you but you're never going to be good as those dudes, so don't worry about it. <laughs> or you could be, but yeah, it's going to work. But yeah. like holding animosity toward them isn't going to get you there. No, I, it's definitely. I mean, you know, I mentioned the age thing with the with the guys that would be pissed about that, and but that applies to me too. Like there was, you know, a place where where like the competition meant something to me, and like what other people were doing was some sort of referendum on what I was doing. For me, and this can be two different paths, for me, it's so mellowed with age because it's just like I've accepted it. Like this this is just the way it's going to happen. And um, But you can so go the other way, as we've mentioned on like, you know, the Super Topo and stuff like that was famous for that. Like mm-hmm. you are just angrier and angrier that what you did is has been minimized uh, by by the passing of history, really, you know. So yeah, it's 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 an interesting thing, but I can only imagine like the celebrity of those two cats, like ninety nine point nine percent of those people were like went home and instantly texted their friends and 
Instagrammed about this experience where those two guys came wailing past them. You yeah, know? totally. Yeah, because they're, you know, they've created this space. And actually talking about that brand that, that Cedar has, like even him as much as anybody, he's like, he sort of like has this foot in this everyman climber land. And that's been part of what his career is all about, you know? So. Yeah. And then he, fucking Honald Tonald. Honald Tonald. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I came away from this trip, like more impressed with Cedar. Just be, just, I don't know. I don't know too many people who could just like off the couch, solo 50 pitches, you know, five, nine or whatever. No, not hard, but like still, it's like it's like pretty legit. Like, but soloing. big roots, big roots, big roots is a big is a big qualifier on that. Yeah, he was like doing like you know fifteen hundred foot roots, right. and and some of them must have been on site. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of them are, I think, or, or like you know, so Alzheimer's long ago, on site. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't matter. That and you climbed them before. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I was really, I was impressed with him, and um, you know, we were kind of talking about how. There were just basically like who could have done what Cedar did, you know, like so many of the soloing contemporaries that, you know, Alex might have, you know, like the training partners that he, Alex could rely on to like come solo part of this like big link up he wants to do. It's like basically, you know, Cedar's one, but you know, maybe Peter Croft is someone who's still alive who could do that. But like, who else is alive? No one's alive. They haven't died soloing, ironically, but like David Lama's gone, Hans Jörg Gower's gone, Brad Cobright's gone. Like a lot of people who, you know, it would be some, like the natural fit. The natural fit for someone like Connell to just be like, hey, come to Red Rock. We're going to solo, you know, 100 pitches today. Not a lot of people could do mm -hmm. that. Yeah. You know, maybe no one, maybe really no one. Mark Sinnott is one of climbing's all-time great explorers, big wall adventurers, and best-selling authors. He wrote The Impossible Climb, the definitive book on Alex Honnold's free solo of El Cap. His latest book is The Third Pole, Mystery, Obsession, and Death on Mount Everest. Mark, I was thinking about our relationship, and I think you were the very first professional climber I ever met. I don't know if you recall this, but you did a presentation at the Tufts Mountain Club where I went to college up in... Where is that? Lincoln, New Hampshire, somewhere. Woodstock. Woodstock, that's right. You know, I'd just been climbing for a couple of years, and you came over to our little club and re regaled us with your adventures in Pakistan and elsewhere. And But yeah, you were the first, first like, big deal climber I ever met. Well, that's pretty cool. I remember you, too, because I remember, you know, sometime after that, you reaching out and us having conversations about your aspiring career as a writer yeah and uh you know we, we haven't kept in touch a lot since then but i've been following along and reading all your stuff and it's been pretty awesome you know you were one of the few people who were very gracious with your time and advice which i have never forgotten you know and you oftentimes as you're just like getting going as a budding journalist or something like that there's a lot of there's a lot of people who, you know, are in positions of power, just in positions of, you know, being experts that aren't as generous with their time. So I really appreciated that. Well, it's been awesome to uh, 
to see where you've gone with it and also just reading your stuff. I mean, you're, you you have a, a very unique, distinctive voice as a writer, and I personally appreciate it greatly. I don't think I've ever told you that, but I love it, and I'm constantly, like, laughing my ass off as I'm reading your stuff. Oh, thanks, man. It, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, well, it's hard to have a, a voice as a writer, um, but yours is great. Thank you so much. And um, ironically, we're we're here today not to talk about my writing, but yours. Well, let's keep let's keep doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean it. I mean it genuinely. And I'm well. You come from New Hampshire, where there's no um, sugarcoating anything, so you give it give it to people straight um, up there in the northern country. Yeah, it's one of the things that I love about living here. I think it's the reason that I live here is that there's no bullshit and um everything is just people are kind of pretty real and uh and i I love that about this place but yeah so we are here to talk about your book um that was just released yesterday and that you've been working on for what some two or three years and uh it's called the third pole what is it the third pole mystery obsession and death on mount everest Everest, Everest. <laughs> did you, you get to the, the biggie? Did you get to the point yet, Chris, where you, the story about the great trigonometrical survey, where you know it talked about Everest and that his name was actually pronounced Eve Rest? Yeah, that's actually what I was playing off. Yeah, I was. Okay. I was pretty surprised. That was a little little point of fact that I hadn't actually known. Um, I did. I have read Wade Davis's book Into the Silence and. Uh, he does talk about what kind of jerk that guy was um, in a lot of ways. So, and But also, interestingly, that he was not that uh, accepting or interested in having the, the, the highest mountain in the world named after him. Yeah, well, he kind of thought that that was stealing his fire in a way because his obsession and passion was, you know, that great arc of the meridian, as they called it. And, uh, and so he didn't he didn't want to like distract anyone from the idea that that was his real, you know, contribution to humanity. I thought all that stuff was super fascinating and I knew a bit about it, but I, I didn't really understand it. And, you know, I read into the silence and I, and I decided I wanted to go deeper to explain that just so that I could understand it better. But also I I think, you know, most of the readers, you know, probably don't like have deep appreciation and understanding about what all that was about. I'd I'd love to know just a bit more about your book. But I, I know it's about um, Everest, of course, and I guess I'm curious, like how you came up with this idea for this book because you do a deep dive into one of the most well-known climbing stories in a way, the Mallory and Irvine expedition, and in 1924. And so it's not like the the first subject I would necessarily have latched onto as a in terms of you know book content in 2021 to to put out. So so where did this idea come from? And and I'd love to just hear more about what the book is all about. Well, I mean, I guess you probably never imagined you know that I would write a book like this, and I never imagined that I would either, or that I would go to Everest. I think not long before this project started, I had told my wife that I uh, emphatically that I was not interested in that and would never go there. And, you know, I had my whole reason for why. But what happened was I I went to a, a, a presentation uh, given by a good friend of mine named Tom Pollard. 
And he was part of the expedition in 1999 that found the remains of George Mallory at 26,700 feet up on the north face of Everest. And I I knew the story, um, but I... I didn't I wasn't like intimately, you know, knowledgeable about it and I had not actually read any books about Mallory and Irvin at that point. But having my friend tell the story and show images from that expedition and images of, of Mallory, you know, when they found him and, and they're they're graphic and, and kind of disturbing, it just sort of hit me in the gut and I went home that night and I thought to myself, you know what? I don't really know the the details of this story. And I, I have this incredible bookshelf, which is right across from where I'm sitting now. And I looked on there to see what I had for Everest books and to remind me, you know, what I had read on the subject. And I realized that I only had one and it was Into Thin Air. And that is what formed my worldview of Everest and I had this moment where I thought to myself, you know what? I have never given Mallory and Irvin and the early British Everest pioneers their due because of, you know, the modern Everest stigma and because of, you know, sort of preconceived notions that I have about the mountain. And so before I did anything, I just thought, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to rectify this situation because I think these guys actually represent everything that I really admire about exploration and mountaineering. And I ordered all these books. I ordered half a dozen books. I read them all. I found myself becoming really fascinated by the story and I found myself thinking a lot about the spirit that must have been inside those early Everest pioneers. And I had essentially finished my my book, The Impossible Climb, and I was fishing around for another project. You know, I looked at all the books that I had, all the Everest books, and I thought, what if someone wanted to, to retell the Mallory and Irvin story, but to do it in this immersive style of journalism that I really like and appreciate, and that I think you do too, Andrew, where like, maybe I'm part of the story, and what would that look like? And I quickly realized that nobody had found Irvin and that somebody could launch an expedition and go and, um, you know, follow in the footsteps of, of those early Everest pioneers. And, and they could they could tell a story that had two interwoven narratives. So instead of being into the silence where it's all third person and it's all history, the book would be um, half and half third-person historical narrative interwoven with first-person my story of following in their footsteps to try to solve the mystery. And that would give me a platform to paint a portrait of Everest in 2019, sort of a uh, modern-day update to the mountain 25 years after Into Thin Air. And so I, it, at first... It seemed kind of far-fetched, and then as I thought about it more and more, I kind of became obsessed with the idea, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. You know, there's more complex reasons, but that's, you know, in broad strokes, what sucked me into this. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating story, as you alluded to, the, you know, the mystery of whether or not these these two guys from England actually made it to the top, and the allure of 
Irvin's body and his you know, alleged camera that he may have held, which you know potentially could have held this photographic evidence of of an achievement that that the the climbing world still you know considers unresolved. Yeah, it kind of has this sense of you know the holy grail or something like like that, like this this allure of this promise of of some knowledge that could be discovered if if you just happen to you know look in the right place or get lucky and stumble upon it. You know, one interesting question about this that I have is, what do you think would change if if we let's say we discovered that you know you hit the jackpot, discovered Irvin got his camera. And there was a summit photo in there. What what do you think that would change about our understanding of climbing? You know, in the simplest terms, I think that it would that it would change mountaineering history if somehow the camera could be recovered and it had an image of the two of them on the summit. I mean, that's an interesting thing um, to debate. I could see you writing about that subject. Does the first would that count as the first ascent? And I think most mountaineers would say that it wouldn't because you have to come back down alive. But you would have to put some kind of an asterisk next to Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary's first ascent of the mountain. And I and I think, um, you know, even Edmund Hillary himself acknowledged that, that it, it would mean something different to him if he knew that those guys had stood up there. 29 years before him and and Tenzing Norgay, it would also change the history of the north side of the mountain because the Chinese made the first ascent of the Mallory and Irvin route in 1960. And that achievement is hugely important in China. And, you know, for that reason, and this is really part of my story, I don't believe that the Chinese have a lot of interest in solving the mystery potentially, you know, opening up that whole can of worms that someone had been there, you know, before them. So so that's like a long answer to what it means in the in the simplest terms. In terms of going deeper than that, I felt like I kind of identified a, a, a little bit with Sandy Irvin's parents. And I think part of the reason was that I went to his archives at, at Merton College, Oxford, in the UK. And I I spent time going through all of his archives. My grandfather went to Merton College uh, just a few years after Irvin. And so it was just sort of a special visit for me. And when I was looking through his photo albums and all his personal items, I was thinking a lot about his family and his parents in particular, what that must have been like to lose their son, but to actually lose him, where... There was no closure because they never knew what happened. And I felt like if something like that, God forbid, ever happened to me, that I would have this burning desire to know what happened. And I think there's a lot of people who 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 would like to know, who are who are just curious. Maybe not even so much did they summit or not, but just what happened that day. And um obviously a pretty incredible achievement for them to even get to where they were, which was 28,200 feet in 1924. I mean, we're talking, um, a, a, you know, a time period where the whole endeavor of, of modern high altitude alpinism had not even been invented yet. So they were basically figuring out, uh, figuring it out as they went. And they were, 
and they were decades ahead of their time. And so that's inspiring. And, and knowing what happened that day is, is something that I think a lot of people have interest in. At the same time, it's kind of nice that we still don't know because the fact that we didn't know and that it was a mystery is what sucked me in. It has more power that way. So there's sort of a, you know, a silver lining there as well. So you cite, <clears throat> excuse me, you cite, uh, you know, Into Thin Air as, as the one book you had read mainly about Everest before getting sucked into this project. And certainly as a climber, as a big wall climber and a rock climber and kind of a core climber, you had this certain attitude towards Everest that I think a lot of listeners of the show share. Andrew and I certainly partially share about, you know, the shit show aspect, um, which was definitely solidified by Into Thin Air. Tell me a little bit about the fact that you ended up being on the mountain um, during a time and a set of incidences. I think that in all metrics actually were much more severe um, in the outcomes than even what Krakauer described in uh, in Into Thin Air. Um, something that's actually you know become a little bit more commonplace, frankly, since his book. Uh, but yeah, describe uh, being there during the infamous. Um, day and night of the the conga line picture that we all saw um in 2019 um new york times ran it so it became this very mainstream thing um and and that was a big part of the book and and i'd like to actually actually ask you some details about that as well but what was it like uh when you sort of woke up to the fact that you were suddenly sort of in crack hour shoes every year more and more people try to climb everest you know, there's a thing called the Himalayan database, which I'm sure you guys know about, where they record all the information about various, you know, attempts and individuals who are trying to climb Everest, but also uh, all the mountains in the Himalaya. And according to the Himalayan database, the number of Everest aspirants just goes up every year. So 2019 was a record year. It was, I think, 1,100 people. 800 on this on the south side uh nepal and about 300 on the chinese side and another thing that you can um dig out of the himalayan database is the statistics about how many people die and andrew's actually written some interesting stuff about this in regards to uh to Corey richards and what happens to your odds when you're trying to climb a non-standard route without oxygen it's crazy i think it's one in three your chance of dying based on the statistics and what's happened to other people who have tried to do what you're trying to do. So we knew that basically one out of every 82 people who are heading out of base camp out of a total of 1100 aren't going to come back. And as a result of that, uh, we, we were led by this veteran Kiwi guide named Jamie McGinnis. He sat us down and he said, you know what guys, let's not do it. Let's not be part of that because there's going to be mayhem and there's going to be drama and, and sadly people are going to die and I don't want to be up there and be mixed up in it. And what happened in 2019 was that it was a terrible season for weather and the jet stream just never let the mountain go. And so there was essentially only one weather window and all of those people went to the summit at the same time. In 2018, I think it was, the summit window was 11 days long. And so the, all the outfitters and the guides worked together to spread themselves out so that they weren't all on top of each other. And as a result, 2018 was a good year and you didn't really hear a lot about it because there wasn't as much carnage. But in 2019, 
It was essentially one day. And everybody went to the top, and we didn't go. And we were in advanced base camp. And I describe watching the conga line on the uh, north side through binoculars. And the same thing was happening over there where we were. And then monitoring all the radio chatter and hearing about what was happening and having the reports come in about uh, people dying and accidents and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I'm there. Well, I, I was there as a, uh, as a journalist for National Geographic in addition to writing my book. And, you know, like any journalist, I said, okay, well, this is part of the story. And I'm going to report on this. And I could see this being a really important part of my book in terms of I will tell the behind the scenes of the viral photo that everybody saw. Here's what actually happened. And there's two chapters in the book towards the end, and one's called The Day Everest Broke, and the other one is called Cam. And this, the, the, the Cam chapter is about a, a British woman of Indian dis- descent and the epic um, that she had up on the mountain. And I, I would say that doing all that reporting, interviewing everyone, um, being there in person, being an eyewitness meeting up with these people when they came down, watching like a dead body come past camp strapped to the side of a yak. All of that um, was some of the most compelling material for me to write. And I think that it's some of the best stuff in the book. And I've, I've had people tell me that, you know, the modern day story is, you know, in some ways more, more interesting than the, uh, than the historical piece. When I go back now, I mean, I, I, I actually finally stopped and I don't read the book anymore. But when I was writing it, I read it hundreds of times, basically. It's hard to tell how good something is when you're that close to it. But my sort of meter for that is, you know, how engaging it is for me. <laughs> because it's it's just, it's used up for me personally. Because I wrote it and I'm editing it and all that. But when I read that last section of the book... I just cruise right through it and I enjoy reading it. And, and to be perfectly honest, there's times where I sometimes I do like a little silent fist pump that no one sees except for me because I say, you know what, this this is good stuff, Mark. And you told this story well. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm really hard on myself as a writer. And um, I don't even necessarily think I'm good at it. But but sometimes I read stuff and I'm like, yeah, cool, that that works. I don't think I can make it better. Well, a comment on that that I have is that, for one thing, it, it, you know, I actually reread those chapters last night, and uh, you know, there's a lot of compassion in in what you're writing, even though you you know you don't really pull any punches about what happened. But the thing I appreciated, at least in there, you don't necessarily wax into any sort of editorial comments on you know the shit show as it were it felt very much like you tried to find the humanity in the people who were up there whether they passed or whether they made it through or talking about their friends who had died uh, or even talking about you know the betrayals if you want to use that word and maybe that's even editorial editorializing but uh, of of abandonment versus you know people trying to help each other up there so i th- i thought it was pretty 
you know, on the surface, leaving it up to us to decide what we sort of felt about it, even though it's hard to sift through that because again, you know, I have just this baggage about what goes on on Everest and certainly that day and the, that night uh, didn't make me feel like it was, you know, any more noble and dignified than I, than I felt about it before. I mean, that, that, uh, that makes total sense really, you know, and, uh, but that's, that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to report and storytell and and report in such a way that people like you who are reading it, I mean, maybe you're a bit jaded about Everest. Most core climbers are, but I wanted it to still be compelling enough that you would keep turning the pages and be like, wow, like I I'm reading this and I'm interested in, uh, and, and what I'm learning here. You know, somebody asked me in an interview recently, they said, well, what is it that's, that's broke? You know, because the chapter's called The Day Everest Broke. I think the, the essence of what's broke is that normal people end up in this position where, some, where somehow they're stepping over bodies of other people who aren't dead yet, and they're still going to the summit. And that's that's dark and messed up. And I think that's where a lot of the Everest hate comes from, because I think people know that that happens up there. And so I went to great lengths to try to unpack that and to put it in perspective, because nothing in life prepares any of us for a moment like that. And so I tried to kind of present both both sides of that coin to see, you know, how that just might, you know, stir ideas in people who are reading it. I want people to get to certain points in the book and be keenly interested, but have to put it down for a minute and think about what it means. You guys um, were just referencing the 2019 conga line photo. And um, I saw a report recently that Nepal has, in response to that, has made a new rule banning the use of photography that shows basically conga lines on the mountain. I'm not sure how they would enforce that if they've got the, uh, the necessary, you know, um, phalanx of KGB operatives that can send out into the world to, to poison you. If they find you posted a, your Instagram photo of the conga line, um, after your Everest trip. But yeah, I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that, um, on that bit of news. And, and, and also we're talking about how Everest is sort of, it's suffered from this cynical, view of it, the cynical impression that people have of what goes on on the mountain. I'm wondering if you see any opportunity for a new Everest, perhaps one that could be, you know, regarded in more positive terms or more favorable light in the future and and, and what it would take to get there. Well, that's a, that's a really great question to Andrew. And it's really the most important question because, because Everest is, is kind of broke right now and it needs to be fixed. I think the Chinese and Nepalese governments understand that, but I think they struggle in terms of making real meaningful change because, well, in Nepal in particular, Everest industry is a really important source of, of revenue for the government. It's it's a business, you know, and I've heard people refer to it as Everest Incorporated. You know, China is a much wealthier country for them, I think it's a bit less about, you know, how much money they're they're making. I see Everest as something that kind of fits into their whole kind of geopolitical plan, you know, the 100-year marathon I write about in the book, um which is, you know, 
this strategic vision for China to supplant the U.S. as the you know world's dominant superpower by 2049. I think Everest fits into that. I think that's why they're building this giant mountaineering center. I think that's why they put a road into base camp. That's why they put a 5G tower in on the Rongbuk Glacier last year, on the East Rongbuk Glacier is what I was told. That's why they're building high-speed rail line, essentially right to Shigatse, so you could get to base camp super easily. You know, in terms of exactly what that would look like, well, okay, one other thing that I was going to say is that Alan Arnett calls it silly rules season, I believe. You know, he's, you know, sort of like the leading Everest blogger and um, reporter. And every year, the same stuff happens on the mountain, and there's lots of bad press. And then they, they, they come out with these silly rules. And the one about not being able to take photos is is um, is about as silly as it could possibly get. Um, because it's it's obvious that the reason why they've made that rule is they find it embarrassing to have that photo out there of the conga line they're trying to control something that they can't control you can't stop someone from taking a photograph there's no real way to police that it's it's horrible to imagine what that would look like if they if they did try to police it so so i personally think that's really silly i heard that they had issued um 289 permits and you know when you think about the fact that each one of those people is 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 more than likely going to be climbing on a one-to-one ratio with a sherpa climbing guide so you could double that number then you can add in other porters and whatever else and you realize it's going to be a big season on the south side of everest even during covid you know i think it's 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 less than than last round in in 2019 but it's still going to be a really big season the chinese side i think most people know is closed and it hasn't been opened since we've been there but the chinese are climbing everest and they did last year and most people believe that they are this year but they're not really telling anybody about what's going on i i've thought a lot about what could be done to fix the mountain and i think that a way to uh filter out a lot of the problems would be something like a rule where you had to have climbed a previous 8000 meter peak in order to be able to get a permit to climb everest and i had not done that so that would have precluded me um or have some other requisite experience that is equivalent to that which I think maybe I I could have met that requirement because of all the climbing I've done. But essentially, weed out the people that are climbing a big mountain uh, for the first time, that would significantly reduce the numbers of of people that that are on the mountain. And that is kind of the essence of the problem. And I think that there should be some kind of a bounty or a or a regulation having to do with fines where there is a a cost to be paid if you abandon your equipment up on the mountain. If they did those two things, then they could at least get to a point where the mountain could start to heal a bit and um, they could arrange cleanups. They could potentially close the mountain um, like China has done and go up and spend a season or two cleaning it 
and getting all the garbage out of there and just have the governments take some of the money that they've made off of this enterprise and and pay climbing sherpas to go up there and clean the camps and sort of hit the uh the reset button and i don't know if any of those rules would 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 actually ever come into play but i think that they would help a lot if they did just i'd love to hear your two cents on my own take on this subject you know it's it's um it's a supply and demand issue obviously and you know the the big issue is getting reducing the number of people on the mountain because the crowds have become an objective hazard unto itself and as as you alluded to in 2019 it was the reason people were dying was the fact that they just were standing in line for so long that they essentially froze to death so how do you reduce the number of people yeah you could go through the experience route or you could just you know do the you know use economics and and make everest more expensive i'm not sure i have a a strong sense that that it would be a bad solution, you know, because although it would be, I guess, making the mountain more of, you know, a playground for the elite and wealthy, you know, there could be potential solutions to that where there's, you know, certain, the elite and wealthy, you know, fund a certain number of spots for people who, you know, just don't have as, uh, as much money, something like that. The other issue I see with Everest is the Kumbu Icefall, which I find to be a, an ethical nightmare in terms of the way it's currently run, where people pay the Sherpas, uh, the Icefall doctors, to essentially spend the most amount of time on the most dangerous part of the mountain, figuring out a route, putting in the ladders, putting in ropes, and so forth. You know, we've seen a number of incidents in the last few years that. Uh, you know, where there's been tragedies as a result of that. So I find that uh, just to be a problematic part of the Everest experience uh, from an ethical perspective. And so I don't know if the solution there is to just simply climb from the Chinese side or to think out of the box and potentially use helicopters to, you know, ferry people to Camp One and have their Everest climb begin on the glacier. They are trying to get the Nepalese government to allow um, people to just ferry past uh, the the icefall to Camp One. I think that's something that's in the future. I think the icefall is getting more and more dangerous. I think it's going to get worse. I think you know I, I haven't actually been there, so I've only been to the north side of Everest, so I can't speak from personal experience. But what I read is that you know those seracs up in the western Kume. Um, on the west shoulder are just getting dicier and dicier and so something will have to be done there and I think that's the direction that it's going where they will ferry people up past that the the thing about making it more expensive is just people are so obsessed with this mountain that I think no matter what the price is people will come up with the money and I I having been there I I would say that I I kind of liked the idea and and just the reality that a lot of people there were were just scrappy dreamers who had scrapped to put it together and that it wasn't just the domain of you know elite you know ceos and and lawyers and stuff and so you know i i I would i would be apprehensive about that but i think even if it was super expensive the scrappy dreamers would somehow come up with the money because they they want to do it so bad but there's no easy solutions. Um, you know, when the weather cooperates and you have a big summit window, it goes okay. And you don't hear that much about it. And 2018 is, is a perfect example. And when the weather doesn't cooperate and the jet stream doesn't let the mountain out of its grip, 
you have a season like 2019 when 11 people died. Yeah, and the the thing that's interesting, I mean, the money thing too, is that like that does not uh, get rid of super incompetent people climbing up there because the the amount of money that you've paid does not relate to that in any way. You know, the the millionaires are just as a big a liability sometimes as the scrappy guy who you know hung drywall for ten years and and saved his pennies. You know, so that's kind of interesting. The other thing I think that's kind of uh, antithetical to at least the way we look at climbing is is all that regulation, you know, I think all of the three of us come from a, a climbing background where, you know, we, we get to do what we want when we want. And, and, and part of like the thing that has always pushed me away from the idea of climbing in a place like the Himalayas, other than the fact that I'm a wimp, I mean, that's, you know, the main reason, but you know, the idea of permitting and having to deal with liaison officers and all these things that go with climbing in those countries just doesn't sound that great. And I know plenty of people, you know, even thinking about like Charlie Fowler and 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 some of these guys who did amazing stuff in in the Karakoram and the Himalaya, you know, he also had a real big problem with that and found ways to circumvent it. So it's interesting that we're here talking about regulation and trying to like narrow this all down because it's absolutely necessary. But you know, my hackles sort of rise when it's like, yeah, you know, again, the person that decides he or she wants to do it should have a shot at it so to speak so it's, it's it's a difficult conundrum you know yeah well that's how it is currently where they yeah well the thing is they say that you have to apply and i didn't realize this at the time i thought it was kind of a real thing i'm not sure why but uh i wrote down every climb i ever did and i was actually like slightly nervous because you know i um hadn't climbed eight eight thousand meter peak before so so maybe i'm not gonna pass muster but as it turns out they let anybody climb the mountain currently and you're right like this is a thorny problem because i don't like rules i I don't like rules in any way shape or form especially not in climbing but i mean when i think rules are dumb i have a tendency not to follow them you know but in this case we have a problem and that and there's no easy solution to it uh i had the opportunity to unpack that in in my book and I, I don't do a lot of editorializing about this subject but what i do is i i try to paint a very um intimate portrait of what it is actually like this is what it looks like this is what i experienced this is what i saw and i think i i think people will find that interesting we kind of got away from the the mission there and in, in terms of Irvin's body we don't want to talk about necessarily the the spoiler about the the way that search ended but what did you you know you you got this obsession you you followed it to as far as you could actually physically even um what did you take away from you know what you learned about their climb uh who they were Mallory and Irvin who that group of people were in the 20s climbing up there that that you know maybe you've taken to heart or or personalized you know i think in the beginning i was talking a bit about the spirit of, of Mallory and Irvin and um, Mallory had this um, well you know he has this famous quote where somebody asked him um, why 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 Everest why are you trying to climb Everest and he said because it's there and um, it's been kind of this famous like enigmatic thing ever ever since um, but another time someone asked him and he said I'll see if I can remember it for the stone from the summit for the geologist for the knowledge of the limits of human endurance for the doctors but above all 
to keep alive the spirit of man, uh, the spirit of adventure, I think. Yeah, but above above all, to keep alive the spirit of adventure in man, I think. And um, I think that's what what really intrigued me and drew me in initially was was just imagining the spirit in those guys. And I and I think that's the same spirit that all of us lifelong climbers have inside of us. And I, I, I think ultimately that's really what I was there searching and trying to discover. And, uh, and I, I'm really glad that I told this story in the way that I did, because it's a lot different to be there on the mountain, you know, actually following in their footsteps, camping in the same places they did in terms of trying to get in touch with that than reading about it in a book and doing it as a purely academic exercise here um, at my desk in terms of writing about Everest. I was so glad that I had been there and seen it and felt it and smelt it and heard it and experienced it in every way because it allowed me to, uh, you know, appreciate it and to, uh, to write about it in a way that I don't think that I, that I could have otherwise. And I feel like I, I did come close to, uh, to kind of connecting um, you know, with, with those two guys and about what it was that was driving them and, um, to see a bit of that in myself and to also see it in all these, these people that were on the mountain, you know, and that's, that's something that I've written about, which is that there, there is an incredible spirit in these people that are trying to climb Everest. It's really popular to just kind of bag on them and hate them, but it's not what I experienced when I was there. And yeah, the place is broken, but I felt a lot of solidarity with everybody that was on the mountain in the same way that I always have with the climbing tribe. And that was not something that I expected it. Renan felt it too, Tom Pollard, everybody on our team. Like I remember getting to base camp and looking, we all looked at each other. And we're like, wow, like this is so not how it had been described to us. This is a cool scene. And these people are, these they're good people. And uh, the way that Renan tried to capture it was he did this thing where he was doing fist bumps with everyone. And every time he would do a fist bump, he would hold his camera out with the wide angle lens and he would take a selfie. And he has like hundreds of these of him fist bumping. And you look at the faces of these people and you can just see kind of the joy and you can see how they're lit up and this solidarity that I'm talking about. Um, so that was something that I took away. It just doesn't fit neatly into how we're supposed to think about all this. It'll probably make some people hate me, but I try to just tell it like it is. And that's what I saw and, uh, and what I experienced. And that's what I, that's what I've always loved about climbing. I mean, uh, this whole thing is, is, uh, is about solidarity with other climbers just like the partnerships and the connections that we have with these people and the bonds that we form. And, um, and so that trip was, was, uh, was actually surprisingly special in that way. You know, folks, great journalism needs support. But if you can't find any of that to throw some cash at, you really should consider supporting the Runout Podcast by becoming a Runout Rope Gun at patreon.com slash runoutpodcast. We really can't do this without you. Along with a heart brimming full with love and satisfaction, you will receive scintillating rope gun-only bonus material like our recent discussion of turning a blind eye to the insane ethics around chalk and bolts. This idea that we can smear this stuff all over the crags and it's totally fine... 
and we don't actually think twice about it is kind of a wild ethical problem with climbing that we prefer to just not talk about Mm -hmm. in a weird way. It has this uh, air of being, you know, impermanent or something, you know, like you could just like wash it off. In so many places, it's completely and totally installed permanently. And to pretend it's not is just, it's just not naivete, it's denial is what it all comes down to. Yeah. Yeah, chalk is permanent. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want any of that, or for us just to keep doing what we do, go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Today's final bit comes from Luke Mihal. Luke is a climber and writer living out of Durango, Colorado. He is also the mastermind behind the Climbing Zine and Dirtbag State of Mind podcast. Today, he's whipping up some spoken word poetry for us, with beats by Devin Dabney and production by Chad Rich. It's time to get out of the four walls and start climbing some walls. Walls built by Mother Nature, ocean, sand, and time. I get the time for you for a rhyme or two given to me by walls. But even walls fall down. I saw it happen the other day. A whole section of cliff gave away. Walls become boulders and dust erupts. The walls are telling me it's time, time for another sort of climb, an ascension of rhyme, time to consider this delicate balance that we all hover within. It's time to reconsider that it isn't too late, but there's no time to wait. The United States is divided, But on this issue of our home, of nature, we can be united as we, the people. Time to protect bear's ears forever, ever, ever. Time to give back to the bear's ears intertribal coalition, to a people who care for this land in a better way than we are today. Time to climb, but also to pray for this planet Earth we call home that is in decay. Time to get out of four walls and start climbing some walls, both metaphorically and physically. We got to figure out these equations. We got to figure out how to get rid of this bitch that is carbon in our atmosphere. We got to let this love that is nature fill our blood, let it seep deep down within our soul. We got to restore a balance with the talent of young and the wisdom of old and a lot of hard work. It's time to get out of four walls, tear down that stupid fucking wall, and start climbing some walls. You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalous, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. 
Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. 